podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Fire for them, fire for them. If you're looking for that 35 bag umbrella and all damn thing there, keep it locked with this Unomics podcast. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Disunomics podcast. This is now being recorded on January the 3rd, 2021. It's a new year, it's a happy new year to all people, especially listeners of last year's podcast. Thank you for all your listens, all your shares, all your kind words. We go again this year, more podcasts, more Patreon content, visuals, a lot better things coming this year by the special grace of God and all that good stuff. Hope you had a good new year, hope you're safe. Um, hope you had fun with your friends and family and hopefully this year we experience no loss and we tackle COVID as best as possible. Speaking of new year, new year, new me, new Brexit. So we are now living in a different time. We're not part of the customs union anymore. We're not part of the single market. There's going to be different travel rules, different migration rules. So make sure you check out last week's podcast where I go through the main things you need to know as it pertains to Brexit in regards to travel and working abroad and trade and all those things there. So make sure you check that out and don't forget to sign up to Patreon. Now, this week's podcast, I'm going to give a quick news roundup of what's been going on in the last few days. And then I'm going to get into the meat and bones of this week's podcast which will be um, kind of inspired by literally FOMO which is fear of missing out of me being in London and spending my new years in London unlike those who are in Dubai, Lagos and Accra and other cool places across the world and I thought I was struggling for inspiration I was like oh let's talk about Dubai so I'm going to be having a look at the United Arab Emirates and to look at the history and to see how it's coming to some form of prosperity. Is it sustainable? Why are people attracted to go there? What have they done differently to other nations? And so on and so forth. So that will be the meat and bones of this week's podcast. But of course, we're going to start off with a news roundup. And yeah, thank you for being with me throughout the whole of 2020, especially the listeners from 2016. 2021, we're going to get it in. So for this week's podcast. News and London to DXB. Hi, it's MXM, and listen to the Dysonomics podcast because it's lit. Because it's lit. Because it's lit. Yo, people, welcome back to the Dysonomics podcast. Hope you had a fantastic new year. We're going to go through some quick-fire news stories to kind of set the tempo for the pod to keep you entertained. Not entertained, to keep you informed, shall I say, so you know what's going on in the streets. So firstly, a bit of hoo-ha regarding the government's latest Tier 4 rules. So the government updated their tier four guidance this week and it kind of caused a lot of wahala, which is what um, us Yorubi people like to say in terms of trouble. So here's some of the, the latest rules or latest news regarding COVID. So the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine has been approved by the MRA. So expect to see that being um, rolled out soon. There was last week we saw a 40% rise in cases compared and a 15% rise in patients in hospital which isn't the greatest of news because the more people in hospital the more stressed the NHS is and that's when we start to get into serious problems we saw we also heard Boris announce that secondary school children of key workers and the vulnerable will be allowed to still go back to school as of this week which will be listened to the podcast However, exam year secondary school secondary school students to spend their first week of learning and they'll be um, first week learning online, sorry, and they'll be back in school on the 11th. The rest of secondary school, they'll be back on school on the 18th. Every secondary school pupil will be tested regularly and most primary school children will be able to go back to school this week. 
Also, the health um, secretary, Matt Hancock, he plays more areas into tier four. Birmingham, they got slapped into tier four. So sorry to my Birmingham people. Um, and now three out of four people in the UK, so that's 44 million people, will be under either tier three or tier four restrictions. In fact, there's only one place in the whole of the country, whole of the UK that is not in tier three or tier four. And that's the Isle of Scilly. And that's only 2,200 people in there. So everybody's in tier three or tier four. Sorry, I misspoke. Three quarters of people in the UK will be under tier four. And basically a quarter will be under tier three because only one is not in tier three. Boris said that he wants us to get out of this tier system as soon as possible. And if he can, he would. But these measures are going to be in place until April the 5th, which is insane. He said that the new variant has basically made us getting out of these restrictions sooner rather than later virtually impossible. Now, for the news. Ofsted Chief Inspector Amanda Spielman said that if we don't allow children to go back to school, we're putting their lives on hold and it should be kept to the minimum. However, teaching unions disagree. They have told primary staff it is unsafe to return to work. We've had Education Secretary Gavin Williamson announce that all of London primary schools will remain shut to most peoples after the local councils put man in the headlock, basically. So that's another U-turn for the government. About 1 million plus kids will be will learn from home for at least the first two weeks of term. So that is some COVID news. Um, Boris was on the Andrew Marr show earlier on today saying, yeah, like we might have to have tougher restrictions. So look out for that. And there's some really funny business going on with um, the vaccine. So the Pfizer vaccine was started to be administered in December. So loads of people got their first dosage and they're meant to get their second dosage around the 11th of January and because it's meant to be like after a certain few weeks or a few weeks. But the government are now saying uh, they're stretching it out because they, essentially what they're trying to do instead of giving people their second dose that's already had a first dose, they're trying to give as many people the first dose instead. And there's arguments that is this really fully protecting us as much as you said you was? You kind of changed the guidance on this. The government, like um, Van Tam and, and Chris Whitty and the Boris are insisting that this is going to provide you 89% um, safeness or whatever, but the streets are unhappy and it's it's sounding quite crazy to me personally and to some of my medical professional friends. Another tidbit to round up is on January on Saturday, 2nd of January, around 1.30, approximately in between two and 300 people gathered in Hyde Park in a anti-lockdown demonstration, which is insane. Remember, Hyde Park is in West London, which is, of course, in tier four. Um, obviously, the police managed to get most people out by four o'clock and 17 people arrested. So I found that quite insane. We saw stuff on New Year's where loads of people from Brentwood, Essex area, snuck into a church to have a shrubs. People getting ushered out, bare people having shrubs and getting arrested and all that type of stuff. So yeah, so that is the news as of January the 3rd, 2021. And now for the Meat and Bones, the podcast, LDN, Airplane Emoji, to the bye. Hi, it's MXM and listen to the Dysonomics podcast because it's late. Because it's late. Because it's late. Airplane Emoji, ignore them, is what many people are on. And I'm going to keep it real with you. I'm fuming. Shout out to my to my good people them, Taze, Dami, Bianca, several other people there just having a time of their lives in Dubai and it's really, really making me sick. But I'm enjoying seeing their content and I'm happy that they're having a good time. So that inspired me to say, raw, like Dubai looks lit. I haven't been yet personally. I should be going this year at some point. Maybe a big group trip, who knows? 
was like, oh, let me look into, I already know some stuff about how the buy got patterned and all that type of stuff. So I thought maybe it's good I share some information regarding the history of the United Arab Emirates and how they became more prosperous and became an attractive tourist destination. So first things first is that Dubai is actually not a country. Dubai is a city that resides within the United Arab Emirates. Many people get that confused and I do not blame them. I was one of those people several years ago, simply due to how Dubai is spoken of, it's almost spoken of as a country. It's actually not a country, it's one of many cities within the United Arab Emirates. So that's the most important thing. Um, if we look, so essentially 50 years ago, like in the in the 1960s, um, Dubai discovered oil, but not that much. And if you fast forward to today, oil only um, accounts for 1% of its um, wealth. So when we think of the Middle East, we just think of it being all rich. That's more Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, I, I believe, holds like 9% of of the words of the world's oil so Abu Dhabi is very very oil rich and that's the actual capital of the United Arab Emirates Dubai really really spun the block and let's look at the history of Dubai so let's go back in the days so Dubai actually was initially like Nigeria like Ghana like many other places a British colony and of course Britain likes to colonize places that they have some form of uh, benefit for and Back in the days, it was the pearl industry. So people would dive into the water to collect pearls, which could be used, etc. However, over time, the pearl thing was not slapping. Um, this is because there was many, many different changes, some exogenous and some endogenous shocks. So some of the exogenous shocks, an exogenous shock is like something external, like an external shock, something that you can't control, that's not part of the industry. First World War, Second World War. Boom. Like those are two of the biggest exogenous shocks you can ever, ever, ever experience. Also, the fact that there was a rise in synthetic pearls to rival the actually organic pearls, and then also when the biggest market for pearls, India, starts putting tariffs, that industry is starting to become done out here. So that was it was looking kind of muddy, but thankfully they found a little bit of oil, but that oil wasn't enough. What Dubai did. And, and along with the rest of United Emirates, is that they invested heavily in diversification. They were not relying on the oil money. They bet big on globalization. They bet big. So if we circle back. So, and I hope I'm not butchering his name, but Sheikh Razid, Rashid bin Saeed Al Makud Matum ruled from around 1958 to, to 1990. His gamble was to spend, he took up tens of billions of dollars in terms of loans and he heavily invested on infrastructure. He had a spending spree. He was at, imagine just going through Amazon, just buying up hella stuff. That's what he was on. He established private companies, ports, telephone companies, airports, schools. Like he was pushing billions into infrastructure. Billions. They essentially used all they found to push their economic objectives. And they centered their they wanted to center their economy on trades, tourism, and finance. And it's starting to look like he's paid off. Dubai has the world's busiest airport, for example, for international traffic. They have one of the largest airlines in the world, in Emirates Airlines. So many people who have flown Emirates said it's the best airlines that they've ever flown on. 
the government invested heavily in that. And it's not by, and it's not by like, it's not by, it's not a coincidence. They did, did that deliberately to kind of encourage people to actually start using Dubai as a stop off because where the Arab Emirates is, is a very, they want, they almost won a geographic lottery. They're in between like Africa, Europe and the Far East. Sort of the perfect stop off point. They actually want people to actually stop off and stay within their city and spend money within their economy. And, I've, and of course we've seen that's worked. So like, for example, according to Statista, in 2018, there were 15.93 international overnight tourists in Dubai. And that was, and that's up like about a million from 2016, so up a million in two years. This number has steadily increased over the past couple of years. Dubai has the second largest and second um, most important and influential Emirates of the United Emirates, Emirates after, of course, the capital. So, and even if you look at 2019, again, rose up to 16.73 million total visitors. 75% of hotel of the hotels were occupied. Hotel occupancy. They have over 741 hotels. They're the third busiest airport by passengers in the world. And they're, and they're fourth most visited city behind one Bangkok, two Paris and three London. So when you circle back to the fact that it was just like a kind of like a desert, not a very rich country, formerly owned by the Brits up until 1971, to now a key hub for finance and travel and tourism. It's it's increasingly impressive. So back to the story. So yeah, so Sheikh Rashid bin Saeed Al Maktoum invested heavily into infrastructure over the years. So we spoke about airports. It was even before, so even before the British got there, there was no United Arab Emirates. It was a collection of kingdoms with various different kings. It became known as the United Arab Emirates under the British rule, which is typical, if you know your history. And they became independent in 1971, minus Bahrain and Qatar. So Bahrain and Qatar were like, we ain't doing this bad bitch link up. We're on our own thing, you get. Emirates joined up with OPEC. So this is a, like a oil, like a cartel, of all Britain countries such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, Nigeria, like so they come they come together to collude and determine supply of oil and the price of oil, and they're very, very powerful. So of course, when when um, the United Arab Emirates joined OPEC in 1967, naturally they increase their production and their supply. Um, export, exporting, exportation of oil, and it wasn't just to the same place they were doing before. They were going to Japan, for example, and they did a big business in Japan. They built school, and off the revenue that they generate from oil, they built schools, they built roads, they built, ref they built refineries, and they even made the whole extraction of oil and the production of oil and exportation of oil easier. Like Dubai is known for having sick roads, for example. Like everything matters, so they made. They invested their oil money heavily into re reinvesting into the country. <coughs> of course, I've told you about building an airports, airlines, schools, finance districts, like refineries, buildings, all type of stuff. How do they do this? Well, first things first, there ain't enough people in the United Arab Emirates, there ain't enough people in Dubai to actually implement this aggressive um, infrastructure change. So one of their biggest imports is actually people. 
they had to get in the labour because one of the most important things in the cost of production, you've got capital, so that's money, machinery, all that type of stuff. You've got, And you've got labour. <laughs> that's the people. 90% of the population of the United Arab Emirates are foreign. Workers from India and Pakistani are actually more common in United Arab Emirates than actual Emirati workers, which is insane. It is even said to say that in Dubai, for example, 80% of the workforce is foreign. Do you get? So this is what they had to do. They had to bring in loads of people. There were several issues with this because, of course, like the working condition, the jobs weren't, weren't exactly the most litest jobs. It was, you know, a lot of manual labour, long hours. Remember where the Middle East, where United Arab Emirates is? It's in, a, in the Middle East, very hot, very, very hot. So they're working long hours, with very limited pay, bad working conditions, and they couldn't even dip home because their passports were being withheld. This changed obviously in 2017. And that's because in 2017, the obviously the, the, the world put these men under mad pressure. And because of the pressure, they had to pattern up. So the Federal Nation Council had to act under foreign criticism. So workers got 30 paid vacation days, one day off a week, medical insurance for the contract. So the cheap workforce was very, very, that, that level of exploitation, sorry to anybody that's um, offended, but it's just the truth. The level of exploitation was very, very fundamental and significant to the, to the rise in Dubai's and Abu Dhabi's and the rest of the United Arab Emirates infrastructure. So crucial because you're able to get, your one of your factors production is dirt cheap and working super duper hard. Like, so it's, it's <laughs> that part of like, it's just crazy. So one thing to understand about that United Arab Emirates is that they are very, they took a big gamble and not just sitting on their um, oil revenues. So I'll give you two different countries that have kind of done things differently. You've got Norway who use their oil revenues to reinvest heavily. They set up like a sovereign wealth hedge fund and that's brought them mad money. So every, Norway, they're good. Whereas you've got places like Venezuela that were just eating, eating goods and now Venezuela in the mud. Because once you want, if you're very, very much tied, you come very much tied to a commodity such as oil, all it takes is oil being pams and then your country's pams. So like early in the year, there was one point where oil went down, early, not early in the year, early last year, there's one point when oil went down literally by 30% overnight. You're fucked, for lack of a better term. So they wanted to diversify. They want to be completely tied, tied to oil. And it, and it paid off. Because remember, in the United Arab Emirates, there is no tax, pretty much. There's no income tax, so there's no tax on the wages you earn. There's no corporation tax, so there's no tax on profits as a business. And there's no sales tax. In fact, they, they literally only just introduced VAT last year and that's only 5%. So they're not getting the revenue that our government, for example, in the UK gets from taxation. They're not. So they're relied on the revenue of oil. And it's a big gamble. But so far, it's paying off because it's not like they start to raise taxes. They haven't done that yet. So they're still trying to rake in more and more business. Now. So we spoke on before they discovered oil 50 years ago and now it only counts 1% of his wealth. One of the key parts of this is just how the region is. So, so they have prosperous ports. They've got fantastic location. And the main for the main cargo port, 
in Dubai is one of the busiest, it's one of the most busiest in the Middle East. And because of its location, it's very advantageous and it's one of the biggest assets. And one of the main, another main key, 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 key thing for the growth of the United Arab Emirates as a whole, and especially Dubai, is the, is the, the Jafsar region. And this is a free economic zone. They've got like 20 of them across Dubai. And it depends, and they're um, attributed to different industry. So in the Jaff, in the Jaff, in the Jaffzar, free economic zone, there's just free economic activity. So there's no restrictions on foreign ownership. There's tax benefits, like I told you, no income tax, no sales tax, no corporation tax. And there's also the benefit of custom duty, there's also benefit of custom duty. There are thousands of companies in the Jaffzar and this accounts for 20% of the foreign direct investment in the United Arab Emirates. So to put that into perspective, these three economic zones, the, the Jafsa in Dubai, which is one city in the whole of, of the UAE, accounts for a fifth, a fifth of the investment from out, outside of foreign nations into United Arab Emirates. That is major. And that is where they're trying to head. There's over 150,000 employees. It accounts for 21% of Dubai's um, GDP. 80 billion plus dollars of non-oil foreign trade. So that is a lot of money coming into the into Dubai in terms of services. So we're seeing how Dubai have tried to pattern a thing. They want to to gain business. They want it to be a financial hub. They want to rival. They want to rival Frankfurt. They want to rival. They want to rival um, Wall Street. They want to rival um, the city, London, Canary Wharf and the city. That's what they want to do. They want to, and Singapore, of course. Singapore is quite similar to Dubai, as in a small country, relatively small nation. Singapore is the travel hub for the Far East. Dubai is the travel hub for the Middle East. Like, very, people, they have a quite high standard of living. And that's one of the big impacts of, of the Sheikh's um, strategies that the standard of living for people in Dubai actually increased rapidly. So going back to that travel and stuff and standard of living, you yourself have seen how many people go to Dubai on your Instagram or your Facebook, or whatever. You see so many people in Dubai, so many people shoot music videos in Dubai. And what do we see? We see luxury, we see skyscraper buildings, we see exclusive animals, we're seeing high fashion, we're seeing luxury cars, lavish dining, yachts, you name it. That's kind of the, the swag of Dubai. And that's there to entice the best, the brightest and the richest to come and spend their money and live in Dubai. The funny thing about Dubai is that you can't just be a citizen in Dubai easily. You have to be living legally, shall I add, in the United Arab Emirates for at least 30 years before you can even apply for citizenship. So it's not like they're just handing out citizenships to people, but they're still trying to promote people to come to the United Arab Emirates. Like people I know have gone to work out there. They will pay for your relocation costs. They'll even pay for your accommodation. So remember, the accommodation is often the biggest cost, biggest single cost for most working working age adults. So imagine accommodation tends to cost between 30 to 50% of people's salary. So imagine, imagine right now you didn't have to pay your mortgage or you didn't have to pay your rent. How much more money would you have? And now imagine on top of that, the money you're losing on tax, you got back. Alexa, pay Young Fug and Rich Homie Kwan lifestyle. 
Because that's what it is. It's lifestyle. And that's what we see out there. The standard of living allows people to own nice things. And and also they're very safely regulated. What you're actually seeing the, the UAE government and police use luxury sports cars and SUVs. It's insane. The Dubai police introduced the Bugatti Veyron, the Ferrari FF or the Lamborghini Aventador to their fleet of police cars. It helped take the Dubai police force image to another level. This is the direct quote from Gulf News. That's crazy. Imagine in a, in a, they're trying to get away from the feds, but they're in a Bugatti. You ain't going nowhere, everybody. In fact, why the feds got a Bugatti? That's nuts. So Dubai is a very, very interesting, peculiar place. And a lot of people always wonder, why have why is there so many luxury cars in Dubai? Well, here are some reasons. One, people usually buy them used. Two, car loans are easily readily available, so you can get low interest rates and they and you get con- um, deals that last over three to five years. Also, jobs are very well paid, as I said. They will pattern certain things for you, like your accommodation and income tax, more corporation tax. You have more disposable income. VAT is only 5%. Like, come on. Also, insurance rates are relatively low. Being in an oil-producing country, petrol is also relatively low. There's rare car there's rare car theft or crime in general in Dubai. And also, there's a lot of rentals. So those are some of the reasons why you're seeing more luxury cars out in Dubai. So, yeah. Dubai is very, very different. They've looked at their economy differently. They haven't got... They've essentially betted billions... And not just Dubai, sorry, United Emirates. They've betted billions on diversification, getting their tourism game up, getting their infrastructure game up, getting their finance game up, their business. Because what they want is to, more and more foreign businesses to come to. Yes, it's fine. We want people to come here and spend money and shop and all that type of thing. But we want businesses here. So Dubai is definitely something to look out on. And as I'm doing this podcast over the years, I'll definitely be tracking how the economy of Dubai changes and what it looks like. But yeah, so far, for, so for Dubai, so far, so good. And you never know, you might hear this longest podcast live from the bye. So yeah, that is it for this week's pod. I hope those in the bye having a fantastic time and those go to the bye, make sure you do your research, make sure you get a nice young hotel and have the best of times. Check out Patreon, follow me on Instagram, Disnomics Pod or Disnomics from a personal account. Twitter's underscore nomics. And until next week, peace and blessings. Podcast Network.